Welcome to episode 237 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcast. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. I love it when we do series. Yes. It's so great to do series with you. That's not I, weird. I love it. I love, I love it. it. Yeah. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> Best intro ever. So yes. to it today, or on this episode, which is happening for us today, we're going to be back into covenants, and this week, we're talking about the covenant of works. We are talking about the covenant of works, which is an awesome doctrine, uh, but m- often misunderstood by people new to Reformed theology. So I'm, I'm excited to kind of unpack it and, and dive in a little bit. We are so good at teasing. Yes. Do you hear this? This everybody take notes. This is yeah. the podcasting that you read about in podcasting magazine. Yeah, the 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 real thing though is like a teaser is supposed to be separate from the actual content, and we just like it, we don't. It's just the teaser is just the first part of the episode. There's yeah, no. It's yeah. everything. It's all. So together. really, we're not that good at it. No, no, no. We're redefining the game. There you go. That's we're not wrong. Works. Everyone else is wrong about what a teaser is. Exactly. That's how it works. Get it? How many work puns and work-related <laughs> puns can we make on this episode? Somebody count them down. Uh, I don't know. Well, before Speaking we do that, of works, why don't we work our way <laughs> over to our affirmations and denials? You actually beat me to that pun. You literally beat me to those exact words. Uh, yeah. Well, ha- let's go with uh, some affirmation denials. And do you want to do... Positive, negative, first. I'll start with last. my affirmation. Okay. I'll start with ahead. an affirmation. That usually means that my denial is going to be a little bit of a doozy. So, so yeah. Is it a that's, doozy? That's another teaser for <laughs> the audience here. So, you just teased me. I was already <laughs> captivated. All right. So, I'll make this part fast. So, I'm, I'm affirming an app. It's really more of like a program because you primarily use it on your desktop computer. Uh, it's called Anki, A-N-K-I, and it is a memorization app. It's, it's a pretty Uh-oh. straightforward app. You create digital flashcards, and you can modify these values, but it has automatic modifiers where once you show yourself the answer, you rate how, you know you rate if you got it wrong, if you uh, you got it but you got it poorly, if you got it pretty good, or if it was easy. And then depending on how you rate your accuracy, it will push that um the review out into the future so i we've used scripture typer in the past we've we've recommended that it's still a great app i just kind of got bored with it and i wanted to use do something different um and so i needed a way to manage the spaced repetition aspect of it because i've been using verses uh which is a bible memorization software but also has the westminster catechism and some other confessions and catechisms but that doesn't have a spaced repetition function built into it. So what I've done is I've kind of used Anki to manage my spaced repetition, even though I'm using another app to actually do the memory work. So Anki's got lots of great features to do, like they call it closed deletion, where like you can have it blank out a particular word. And then when you show the answer, it does that. There's lots of features I haven't really dug into yet, um, but it gives you all sorts of cool statistics too of how long it's taking you to review. You can set it so it will only show you one new card per session instead of like trying to show you every new card per session. Um, so there's a lot of cool there's a lot of cool features. Um, it's not anything super fancy, which is part of the appeal to it. 
Uh, you can log in. They do have uh, iPhone and uh, Android apps you can create a sync, a sync account for, and it'll sync up your uh, desktop with your uh, mobile devices. It's pretty sweet. It's a cool app. That sounds great. Space repetition is killer. Like I don't know if a lot of people are familiar with that, but to have something that yeah. helps you to essentially memorize something and then put it in the backlog so that you come back to it at the regular and appropriate intervals right. so that it, you like really have it move into like your long-term memory. That is such an amazing tool. I've been so helped by that in so many ways. It's really good for scripture memorization because yep. once you get down a passage, particularly if you're memorizing like large chunks of scripture, which is always so wonderful, when you get that down, there I've heard people call it like you need to weed the garden. It's not like right. you need to go back and memorize everything all over again, but there are times where your mind will shift maybe some of the language or the conjugation of the verbs or whatnot. So having the ability to go back, but have something to point to you to say, now it's time to go back and take a look at this again. Right. And all it does is just further cement all of that knowledge. So it's like, what a wonderful way to like consume something and then have it become part of your life to be able to put it into practice. If that's vocab words, if it's learning new things, if it's, I don't know, memorizing how to tie knots, I don't know if that's a thing. But I mean, knots are a thing. I don't know if memorizing how to tie knots is a thing. I presume it oh, is. Oh, it Boy definitely Scouts. is. Yeah. Ask any Boy Scout and they'll tell you all about how many knots they know how to tie. I kind of wish I knew how to tie more knots, but that's like a whole nother thing. But for scripture in particular, such a great tool. And yeah. to, again, having something that is like your little memorization coach, that's always really, really awesome. So I'm going to check that out. I don't know where yeah. you find all these great apps, but somehow you're just Usually like a wealth. it's just Google. You're just a cornucopia <laughs> of apps. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's sweet. And what it's, what's nice with this is like, it has the ability to have, um, multiple decks so you can have multiple, uh, collections of things you're trying to memorize. So my morning routine is I do memorization from the scripture. I do memorization from the Westminster shorter catechism. At some point I'll move on once I've finished memorizing the shorter catechism in like 50 years, uh, I'll move on to a different catechism. Um, I do some Greek paradigm memory work. So I have a deck that is literally just like write out this paradigm. And then, then I can say like, all right, if I got it and it was easy, then this will tell me, you know, push it down the road. I think the first is like four, four days. And then it's like 250% of whatever your current review time is. Uh, and then I do some Greek vocab memory. So I can have a different deck for each of those things. And that way I can just say, all right, this first thing I'm doing is scripture, then this, then this, then this, instead of like one giant jumble of memory work, which is what a lot of the other apps that I've been using do, where you, you can have different decks, but it, it puts everything into your review. And then you can set different rules for each memory deck that you're using. So if you wanted to have shorter, shorter space repetition intervals, you could change that 250% for an, an easy win. You could change that to 150%. And then it's just, it's going to still extend the time, but it's not going to extend it as much per per win. So I think it, the real value of it is it's easy to use. You can you can use it straight out of the box without any modification. But if you want to really kind of like fine tune your memory stuff, then you can can make those fine tuning. And there are a lot of different kinds of memory cards you can make. Everything from a simple flashcard where you hit show answer and it literally shows an animation of the card flipping over just like you were flipping over a physical card to having to type out the answer you know, blanks, you can have it automatically create like, um, reverse cards. So you could create one card. That's like the Westminster question on one side and the answer on the other. And it'll automatically create the, the, you know, the contra or converse card where it'll show you the answer to the question you have to remember. Cause that's something I struggle with. You go to memorize the question and answer 
and you only mem- end up memorizing the answers, well, then it's hard for you then to reference and go, like, well, yeah, like question 15 is, I happen to know question 15 is what is sin. Someone's going to look, it's going to be wrong, and I'm going to have made a fool of myself. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure question 15 of the Shorter Catechism is what is sin. But you, I couldn't tell you which one is about justification. I could probably tell you it's somewhere in the 30s, but but you couldn't get really narrowed down. So you can create those different kinds of flashcards pretty easily. So I think it's really valuable. It's simple enough to use out of the box if you don't want to get into the nitty gritty. But if you do, it also has a lot of additional nitty gritty. And it's free. That's the best part is the, the, the desktop version for sure is free. I think you have to purchase like the iPhone or iPad versions. And I think it's like $25. Uh, so it's, you're basically paying for the development of all of the products, the people who purchase it on, I, you know, the iOS, um, environment, they're kind of funding the investment for everybody. Um, so yeah, it's a cool app. Check it out. We should be sponsored by every single app that we affirm on this podcast. Cause true. we do like such a thorough job reviewing them. It's never just like, Hey, this is pretty cool. You should check it out. So I was like, yeah. let me tell you about all the nuanced features right now. Yeah. I, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to make this one quick. And people are like, yeah, 20 <laughs> minutes later. They're this like, is the story they're of our like, lives. Note to self, buy Tony a dictionary that just has the definition of quick in it for Christmas, <laughs> for midwinter, no reason. The story of our podcasting lives. Yeah. How about you, Jesse? What are you affirming? Well, I'm going back to the well again. This is another music affirmation. And this is like, it's like the popcorn with the coconut oil, but it's different in that it's a same band, but different piece of music, but same music. So here's what I mean. I don't know what episode it was. But I highly affirmed a band called Dens, D-E-N-S, and they produced an album in 2020 called Taming Tongues. It's actually, I, these guys are like, I, can, I consider this polymath rock. And what I mean by that is like, it's, a, it's of a harder variety. There's no like essential screaming, but there is like some derivative screaming, if you know what I mean. Mostly melodic, but of a, has a harder edge to it. It's really beautiful. But I call them like polymath rock because... The lyrics, the album is so creative, so complex, so clever. Uh, These are Christian artists, and their music is really rooted in the gospel and the scriptures. But what's unique about this album is, you may remember me saying, it's 11 tracks, and they're all, each track is just one word, and put together, it's even foolish men are wise when they learn to keep quiet. And so this whole album, what they did is, it's really common and cliche almost, for a hardcore, harder rock band to take one of their songs and make it kind of light or they remix it. Yeah. So it's like acoustic version. That's like super cliche. So here's what Dens did. They just released another album just in, at the end of April called Tamed Tongues. Everything's in the past tense. And now it's 11 tracks and the tracks are named Even Foolish Men Were Wise When They Learned to Keep Quiet. And what they did is they didn't just take one song and make it acoustic. They literally reimagined the entire album as like acoustic grassroots Americana, almost bluegrass a little bit, at least the instrumentation. There's banjo, there's mandolin, there's guitar. But here's the thing that's amazing about this album. It stands on its own. I've been listening to this all week, almost addicted to it. This thing stands on its own. Even if you never heard the rock version of this, you'll listen to this and say, this is just a really amazing music. These, these guys are super talented. So here's my challenge. I'm affirming with the album Tame Tongues by Dens. You can find it wherever music is, wherever. But if people want a good intro to them, introduction, I would say listen to track five called Wise. And the reason why I've been so obsessed with this is the music is so good. But uh, I know I want to do this, and this is kind of be annoying on podcast. But I want to just throw a couple lyrics at you because, and here's the teaser. I listened to this and the thought, 
I'm not trying to make everything about Game of Thrones, and yet somehow <laughs> everything wants to draw my mind back to the conversation we had two episodes ago, which continues to come up. But here's here's like the first verse. It's just really, really quick. And you're going to hear so much of Romans 1 in here. It's a really clever, I think, recapitulation of Romans 1. But here's what the lyric goes. They claim to be wise, but they were made fools in time, trading what's true for all the world's enticing lies that keep them blind, hiding in the shadows they've designed with thinly veiled promises so cleverly disguised. And then here's this like two sentences of a chorus that I thought was beautiful and so thought provoking. Here's what they write. There's wisdom in a fear that moves us lower here that commands all our consciousness and reason be bowed down. And I thought, that's kind of what we've been talking about is how much do we trust the wisdom of God that we're literally willing to bow our own consciousness, our own reasoning of our own minds before his perfect wisdom in reasoning. Even if we can find ways to justify, find ways to insulate ourselves from what we think might be harmful to us. Are we willing to bow down even to that extent? So I loved this song and this music. Look up wise by Dens from their Tame Tongues album. You will not be disappointed. I just think that you should, after listening to you uh, read those lyrics, I think maybe you should like start a slam poetry career because <laughs> you just like your delivery is like, it's just like right there. Well, it's one of those things where this is such a clever song because you'll hear he, the lyrics, as you kind of heard me trying to provide some cadence to them, they spill over into one another and they're just super clever. And yeah. so... It's yeah. The second verse is even even better. We could talk all day, but people should check this out. It's you're gonna find a little harmonica, a little guitar, a little light drumming, and then if you like it, go and try the other version, which is Taming Tongues. But I just love this concept of let's take the entire album, reimagine it, and it's like it makes me so jealous. It makes me want to throw my guitar out the window because it's one thing to be talented in a particular genre. It's another thing where this album is reminiscent, but the songs are literally different, even though they are the yeah. same. And I thought. How dare you? How dare you be good at two different genres, reimagining your album? And I love them both for different reasons. And yeah, so I, think, um, I recommend it. I think that what I would like to see is the reverse where like, it's like, it's like stereotypical that a hardcore band does like an acoustic version of like their most popular song. I would like to see an acoustic band do a hardcore version <laughs> of their most popular song or maybe like. I know Derek Webb is not like our biggest fan. Like I think, I think in the world of people <laughs> who are aware of our fan. show in any way, Derek <laughs> Webb is probably our least biggest fan. Uh, like right, right up there with like, like the provisionist uh, paradise or whatever that pot or like the synergists yes. or like Jordan Cooper, like those, those people hate us almost as much as Derek Webb. I would like to see Derek Webb since he's already like abandoned everything he once held dear. Uh, I would love to see him go back and like do all of his Cademan's call songs, but like hardcore metal style. That would, that would be, actually I be would fantastic. pay. I would buy that album. I would buy that just, album. just to be like, I want to, I want to support. I don't, not the theology behind what he's doing, but just like the raw artistry of being able to take these like, like acoustic fluff, not fluffy, like in the derogatory <laughs> sense, but like they're like soft songs. You just want to like lay down in and take a nap. That's like yes. Cademan's call. Uh, just turn it into like raging hardcore, like Swedish death metal. Yeah, I would totally be down with that. And you yeah, know yeah. what? That would be better than the original. It's true. Although yeah. I do like me some Cademan's Call. It's factually correct. Here's the thing. I think there's at least one person who has done kind of what you have suggested here. And that is, I believe, one Mr. Vanilla Ice. 
has taken most of his Ice Ice Baby album and turned it at one point into hardcore. But it was a little bit too derivative from the original, but I appreciated the effort. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever appreciated anything that Vanilla Ice has done, but <laughs> all right. That's, that's clever and creative, I suppose. It is. So let's go into a little bit of denial action while the time is still ahead of us. <laughs> go yeah. ahead. So... This is a perennial denial. This is one of those standing denials on the Reform Brotherhood that I like to come back to once in a while to just sort of refresh. And I, I'm continuously astounded at the EFS I- I- idiocy that is back out there. again. So, so I I still occasionally run into quotes from EFS advocates that make me sort of like. You know how like when you hit your knee on the desk and, and like it gives you that feeling like you're going to throw up a little bit, like you hit that sweet spot and you're just like you have to stop and breathe really deep or you're going to just blow chunks all over the place. Every once in a while, I run into a quote from an EFS advocate where I just have to like push myself back from the desk a little bit and kind of like put my hands in my head and be like, I can't believe someone would say that. I, I think I'm going to be sick. So I want to read this quote from, um, this is from Owen Strahan, uh, which is spelled Strachan, if you need to look it up, S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, and Gavin Peacock. Um, and it's from their book, The Grand Design. And I just full disclosure, I haven't, I haven't read this book, so it's entirely possible that this quote pulled out of its context may mean something different than it, it seems to mean, but I don't think so given what they've written on the subject in other areas. And so this is from the grand design, which is not a book about the Trinity, uh, which it should be your first, your first problem when they're starting to get into statements like this. So it says, quote, there is an order. And speaking of the Trinity quote, there is an order. The father is the father because he sends the son. The son is the son because he submits to the father's will. The spirit is the spirit because the father and the son send them. There is no Holy Trinity without the order of authority and submission. So the thing that makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit when I read this, the the EFS advocates all sort of flow out of this school of thought, uh, Bruce Ware, Wayne Grudem, right? So they were like the, the granddaddies of this whole thing. And they started their sort of project in theology proper, responding to process theology and open theism specifically. And what I've noticed is they actually have become the open theists or the process theologians that they were attempting to rebut as they've developed this. So in this quote, Strahan and Peacock make the the identity on the reality of the Trinity, the identity of the Father as Father and the identity of the Son as Son and the identity of the Spirit as Spirit dependent on their ac- their economic activities, which means they're dependent on the fact that there is a creation for the Son to be sent to, for the Father to be the Father. So they've now become this process theology where the, the very identity and shape of the Godhead, the very structure of the Godhead, is determined by the economic activity, which is dependent on creatures, right? If there were no creatures, there would be no economic activity of the Trinity. There'd be no ad extra activity. And so without knowing it, and, and this is the more that I read about this, the more that I study it, and I don't say this to be pejorative. I understand that these guys have doctorates and I don't, I understand that they're published authors and I'm not blah, blah, blah. I get it. But these guys just are demonstrating themselves to be really incompetent systematicians, right? This is a statement 
that a first year systematic theology student should be able to look at and go, wait a second, hold on a second. The, the father can't be dependent on the creation that violates aseity. Like that's, that's like a first principle thing that the, that God is not dependent on anyone, but right here, the very nature and identity and, and function of the Trinity ad intra is determined by the ad and extra operations. So it, it, it's just, it's probably just sloppy theology, but where it's most concerning is that when this kind of stuff is pointed out either to these guys directly or to people who are sort of their vehement defenders. The first response is usually like, yeah, where'd you get your PhD from? And you're like, I don't have a PhD. And they're like, Oh, okay. Well then you're obviously a moron and these guys are smarter than you. And, and you're like, no, that, that doesn't, that doesn't follow at all. And they're like, well, yeah, you're dumb. And then the second line of defense is basically like, well, you just don't, you don't get, you don't get what we're doing. You don't understand it. And it's like, this is clear as day guys. Like this is really bad theology. This is really, really bad. So, and James Dahl is all in his book, all, all that is in God, which we've recommended many times. He chronicles and identifies this function of like Bruce, Ware actually subtly becoming an open theist and process theologian in his attempts to justify and argue against it in a, in a distinctly Calvinist way. He actually ends up creating a situation where God doesn't actually at least on one level, doesn't actually know the future or is determined by his creatures. So it's not like I'm the first person making this. But I came across this quote. Uh, the Alliance uh, for Confessing Evangelicals put on the Philadelphia conference. It was virtual. Uh, I think they might have had some in-person people, but it was mostly virtual. And Rick Phillips just gave a, just a fire presentation against uh, EFS that was just excellent. And he brought this quote up. And having not read this, I was like, man, that seems really that seems really bad. I can't believe they would write that. And then I, I tracked down an article on Gospel Coalition uh, by Kevin DeYoung, who I'm sure has read it and is quoting it fairly because that's the kind of guy he is. And there it is, just plain as day, just really bad terrible theology in print by uh, apparently evangelicals finest. So it, it just makes me a little bit sick to think that these guys are, you know, I have a good friend who is in, in seminary and Owen Strehan is this new, one of his new Testament profs. And I'm like, man, this is just bad stuff. Like, like this guy shouldn't be teaching if he can't see how terrible this, the implications of this theology is. That That's all I got. <laughs> I need to take a drink after that. <laughs> yeah, you deserve one. I'm totally with you. Now, not to mention that it's not like we're saying that if there's one part of your theology, it often necessitates that all of it is askew. It can be that way depending on the right. topic we're talking about. But I think what you're pointing out, I'm hoping that when people heard you read the quote just in the beginning, they kind of like were immediately like, huh? Like there's a sense that right. went up when you heard, when you heard, they heard you talking about how it was something in the relationship outside of the Godhead itself that was establishing the role, even though right. somebody tries to cover it up, so to speak, by saying, well, we're talking about the economy, the economic function. You'd be like, listen, that's outside. You, you have to be very careful about how you're trying to establish who God is and what makes God, God. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's bad. It's just real bad. <laughs> and it's like not just the them that, that just do it. I, I'll, I'll put a link up uh, in the uh, – we're sending out a newsletter. Might as well throw that out there. So we've yeah. started sending out a newsletter along with um, with our episodes. Uh, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com and go to uh, – actually, I don't know where it's going to be on the website. 
We'll figure out where to put it on the website so you can look for it. But you can uh, you can go subscribe to the newsletter and you'll get that along with it. We're going to do that kind of instead of show notes because nobody actually goes and looks at the show notes. So uh, so we'll do that. But I'll put that up in there. But the article on the Gospel Coalition that Kevin DeYoung wrote is pretty good. And he, he points out places in Grudem where he basically says the same thing. He points out places in where it's it's this isn't just like Peacock and Strahan had a bad day. This is like a fun a part of the whole articulation of EFS includes this idea that God is somehow dependent on this reality of the son being sent and the father sending in order to be God, in order for the persons to be who they are. And it just misses this fact entirely. And it's, it's just bad theology. There's no, there's no two ways around it. Like this is, this is closer to like paganism and and like Olympianism than it is to Orthodox Christian theology. Um, you know, Zeus, Zeus is, exists partially because his worshipers continue to worship him. Like that's a real common theme in mythology is that the gods draw power from the worshipers. And that's why worship is important. Tinkerbell. This is kind of the same thing as like the father draws his identity from the fact that he has sent the son into creation. Well, that means that in eternity past, he wasn't the father. So it's, it's just bad. It's Tinkerbell. It's just bad. Yeah. It's just Tinkerbell. Isn't it? Yeah. Just, you just clap about? your hands if you believe. Right. Yeah. Make make the light strong. If you're practically an Aryan and you don't know it, clap your hands. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, in the interest of time and also because I want to actually piggyback on what you just said there, I'm going to cede my denial because one, it was not that interesting and two years was, I think, far more helpful to us. But that reminded me of something, somebody who's been sponsoring the podcast these past few weeks and is in fact sponsoring this episode. We've been talking about a lot about Logos the Bible software. And it reminded me that this is why it's so important to have good resources, to actually be well-researched in the scriptures and to be able to look at commentary and supports other documentation that we know to be reliable and steadfast and accurate. And so one of the things I've been really enjoying that maybe people might not know about Logos is their applications for mobile devices are stellar, like amazing. And they sync across devices but more than that, here's what I've been loving is I've been now whipping this out like at church when I'm like tomorrow I have to go get my second dose of the vaccine and I know I'm going to have to sit for at least for a short period of time. I'm bringing the iPad because there's a couple of things in the scriptures. Like I'm obsessed right now with the beginnings of Ephesians chapter one for some reason. I mean, all the Bible's amazing, but Ephesians one is like, come on. Yeah. So, but here's what I've been loving about the app is something strikes my mind. I'm like, you know what? I want to read up on that. I want to look up some good resources. I go to the app, I pull down both the scripture and I have a set of commentaries like on the same device in the same window split screen. And as I'm scrolling through, everything is moving in lockstep. So that's just one of those nice things to have to be able to pull that out on the go. And it's way more handy than I originally thought it would be. And I'm just grown absolutely to love it. Yeah. Yeah. The mobile app has so many different features. Um, you know, there, there, there are reasons why there's a mobile app and there's a desktop app. They're not the same. And, and, a lot of times what I find is that mobile developers that also develop a desktop app, they try to just replicate what they're doing on the desktop on the, the mobile device. And that can actually be really disruptive because your mobile device is not a computer most times. You're, you're not using it as a primary computer. Factually and correct. so th- they've been really intentional. There are some features you can't access on your mobile device that you can access on desktop. 
but that that's intentional. It doesn't seem accidental. And so I, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I, um, I go back and forth whether between whether I'm going to bring a physical Bible to church or whether I'm going to bring my, my tablet. And one of the things that I love is I can actually on, on like my iPad, I can have a split screen built in where I have my Bible on one side and then I have my, have notes on the other. Yes. So I can actually be taking notes in, in Lagos and then it all gets stored in one place and then is indexed and referenceable. I could take it on one half of the screen and then I can have the Bible up on the other. Or, you know, if I'm trying to read Greek, if I'm, if I've got a few minutes and I want to try to do some work in the new test, you know, Greek new Testament, I can have the the English standard Bible or the NASB. I can have that up on one half and I can cover it up with my hand and I can have the Greek new Testament up on the other. And I can tell those two panels to synchronize. So as I'm reading, if I get stuck, I can take a look at the English translation to help me along. So there's a lot of really great features on the mobile app. Um, and we, we uh, also have a discount available. So if you go to logos.com slash Reform Brotherhood, uh, if you go to there and you make a purchase of a package, you can get a 10% discount, um, which is, is sizable. I mean, that's a, that's a big investment, um, but 10% is a lot. Uh, uh, off of that. They're, they're being very generous for our listeners. So if you are in, in the market for purchasing a Bible software, uh, if you've been thinking about it, if you're, maybe your pastor could benefit and you want to go in with another, a couple other congregation members and bless them by buying them an upgraded package or buying them a package they've never had before, you can go to our affiliate link and you can uh, get a 10% discount on that. It's worth the price of admission. It's an investment, it but I'm telling you, it is a fantastic tool. It'll totally change how you, I think, approach your study. It provide, And that's something we'll get into another time. Lots of great resources, actually, yes. that we could talk about. But uh, for today, it's worth it just for the mobile app. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So let's get in then to a little bit of work on the Covenant of Works. And I want to start off the conversation in maybe not in an expected way, but since this is the episode where we fully embrace teasing, I want to do a little bit of teasing of my own. And, and what I think we're trying to solve for here is the question really at the end of all this, to put it out in front. I, I was going to make a, some kind of parallel, draw parallel to WandaVision, but I, I think I'm going to get it wrong, so I'm not going to do it. I'm really <laughs> tempted to try. But what I think we're solving for here is how does the work of Christ work? So in other words, yeah. how is it that the life and the death of Christ are able to provide for believers eternal life? And why is it that Christ, wh- what Christ did on earth is successful and making believers right with God. Why did it, like, quote unquote, work? And so if we understand, here's my, my presupposition. If we understand this thing, this doctrine, this beautiful doctrine called the covenant of works, we're going to have a solid answer to that question because the covenant of works embodies the principles which provide the foundation underneath the work of Christ. In fact, when we speak about the gospel, we're in some ways imbuing or setting before ourselves this idea of the covenant of works, even if we don't realize that's present. But it's all the more powerful in our understanding, and I think also in our obedience and living out the Christian life, if we understand this thing can call it what it is and actually draw some articulation to what it means. And so I think once we understand the covenant of works, we're going to understand why the work of Christ is successful in saving us. And this is of immense importance because if we don't understand the covenant of works, we will be prone to theological error, and yes. our understanding of Christ's work in redemption will rest upon really insecure foundations. Yeah. So have I teased that enough? Yeah, let's get into it. Do it. Start so us off. One of the things that I've talked about, we've talked about on this show before, is that there are certain theological 
loci, right? There's certain theological subjects that are almost act as like a key to the rest of, of theology or a key to the scriptures. And for me, this, um, the doctrine of the hypostatic union in particular, and the doctrine of the Trinity as a kind of related reality really were a big thing that unlocked the scriptures for me. And the next kind of big step that really kind of opened up the scriptures was the the doctrine of the covenants, particularly the covenant of works. And, and where why I say that is I can remember real distinctly um, the first time I read through the Pauline epistles. And, you know, you read the Gospels, it's all kind of straightforward. It's kind of, it's sort of more or less, it's a biography. There's not a lot of, of straight didactic teaching texts. Um, Christ does a lot of teaching and you can get really straightforward principles out of that. But a lot of that is actually really ethical. So then, then you're hearing preaching that's like, it's not about what we do. It's not about, it's not about how well we perform. And you're like, but why does Jesus talk so much about our performance then? Right, right. Well, then you get to Paul and all of a sudden he starts using this language of the second Adam. And I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And it, it never, and honestly, it never made any sense to me. I never quite understood why we would think of Christ as the second Adam. And then the covenant of works comes in, right? right. So, so what we have in the covenant of works, let, let me give a brief definition. I'm going to use the, uh, the Westminster larger catechism to sort of give this definition. Question 20 says, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? It says the providence towards the providence of God toward man in the estate which he was created was the placing of him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, and then this is the money shot, entering into a covenant of life with him upon right. condition of perfect, personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience." Right. So most people stop there, but this next part is important. Right. And this goes back to what we talked about with what a covenant is. It says, um, of which the tree of life was a pledge and the forbidding to eat of the tree of knowledge upon the good of a knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Right. So we have all of the elements of this covenant here. Right. There's there's a promise of, of blessing upon obedience. There's a sanction or, or there's stipulations of, of forbidding of the eating of the tree of the, of knowledge of good and evil. And then there's a sanction of the pain of death. Right. And so when we talk about the covenant of works, what we're talking about is that covenantal arrangement, which God made with Adam in the garden of Eden. Right. Some people I know that like Jim Cassidy on the Reform Forum, at least the last time I remember him talking about this, is real big on the Kleinian notion that creation itself and the giving of the covenant of works are actually like the same event or they're events that can't be separated. I don't actually think that's the case. And I don't think that confessional or biblical language justifies that. But but all of that aside, the covenant of works is this covenantal arrangement which Adam had in the garden. And more or less what it is is. Um, there's this moral law that that's woven into the nature of the universe. Don't violate that. And then there are these positive laws, which are above, they're added to this baseline moral law, these positive laws. Don't eat this fruit, do guard and keep the garden, do, um, do be fruitful and multiply these, these added commands and prohibitions on top of the moral law. And those things together constitute the covenant of works, which Adam was given in the garden. And the promise of that is that Adam would be granted to eat of the tree of, of eternal life and thus be confirmed in his state 
as the heir of all creation, um, you know, as the the head of all humanity. And, and then on top of that, this covenantal blessing, this covenantal uh, reward that he would have been granted will also be granted to all of his posterity. Right. That's the covenant of works, right? And, and that's where we get this outline, and that's where it starts to come to fruition in the New Testament, right? Adam was given this this covenant with all of these blessings attached to it, and had he uh, had he fulfilled his obligation, all of those blessings would have then flowed down to all of those whom he represented. But since he did not complete that task and and succeed at that probation, all of the curses of that covenant also flow down to all of those people who are descended from him by ordinary generation. And so that's where now we get this second Adam language is now Christ comes in and because he is the second Adam, he's reheading, right? He's recapitulating the entire human race into this new covenantal arrangement, which we call the covenant of grace, which will come later. Right. That's a good summary. I think we should continue on that and tease out a little bit on Adam's man. I didn't even mean to say tease there, man. We got a lot of work to do on this one. More of we've got a, I've got a lot of work to do on this (laughs) episode. Tease out something about Adam's natural relationship to God, because that point was like really helpful for me when processing this idea and really letting it kind of set down and get a little bit of roots in my understanding of why this is so important because you summarized it. Well, I really think, this idea of describing God's relationship with Adam and in Adam, of course, by extension, all humanity before the fall. And because of the unique role of Adam in the covenant, we need to kind of examine primarily how that covenant applied to him to see how it applies to all of humanity. But the relationship between God and Adam in the garden is termed a covenant because I think what we started with before, which was this promises with repercussions, Right. Because it's not something, of course, that applied to Adam simply by virtue of his creation. And there, that's where some people get confused. Like, well, what's happening here is God's just creating stuff and he has a relationship with that stuff. So why don't we use the term covenant because it seems to kind of just be a nice broad term for anything that God has a relationship with. We're saying something way more particular here. It is something that God entered into with Adam beyond the relationship he would have had to Adam on the basis of creation alone. So we really need right. to kind of understand how the covenant works is important to understand Adam's natural relationship to God. This is why once I really kind of sunk my teeth into this doctrine, I started to have some like issues. Like I would quibble with words like free grace because right. I understand that what people are generally saying, what they're intoning there is that this grace was given to me and I didn't cost me anything, but it's not free writ large. It comes at like immense cost. It's like running right. through the life of Christ just to get to the resurrection or maybe even just to his death on the cross and then the resurrection without appreciating or coming to terms with all of the literal work. And that's what we're talking about here. We, he's done. The, the, you know, like the right half of the Bible where so many evangelical Christians want to focus on here is God is love. God is amnesty. God is always forgiving. God is always kind. Yes, he's all those things. But all those things have been merited to Christians by the work of Christ and the work of Christ was work, right? It wasn't like he just breezed through. It was work. And so until we get to the point where we understand that that work was necessitated at the very beginning and it was necessitated with a particular promise with particular repercussions and we and Adam all failed. And so therefore we come into this world under that immense curse, under that punishment. And we, as much as we try to undertake the work that would somehow grant us amnesty, cannot obtain it. It's just too difficult for us to do. It's impossible for us to undertake. We need somebody, not who would just come and say, oh, oh, it's okay, forget about it. 
don't, don't, don't worry about the things that you should have done. I'm just going to forget about that stuff. We right. need somebody who say, no, 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 I, I'm going to accomplish everything that you should have accomplished. And now what I have earned, I'm crediting on your behalf. Yeah. And that to me is not free grace. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that leads into, I think, you know, I mentioned at the sort of the, the lead of the show here, this is a doctrine that I think reformed people sometimes misunderstand, but more often than not, there's an, sort of an instinctive bristling to the, the concept of yes. the covenant of works, right? And the reason for that is because it's misunderstood, right? So, so people hear covenant of works, and what they think it means is that, and I get this actually a lot of times from Roman Catholics, they think what it means is that somehow Adam, in a raw sense, obligates God to reward him with eternal life, right? That, that Adam does something that is so, or doesn't do, but could have done, something that is so meritorious, is so good, that it actually puts God into Adam's debt. And that's not what's going on. Right. So when we say the covenant of works, it's important. It's the covenant of works, right? right? This is an arrangement that God entered into, not a sort of natural state of affairs. That's actually exactly. the number one reason why I, I object to uh, those who would say that the, the covenant of works is actually part of the creative act, that in making Adam in his image, that this covenant is built into that is because the covenant of works is an arrangement, a voluntary arrangement that God went in and underwent, right? And the, the OPC did a study committee on this, um, on the question of republication, which we did a whole episode on. I'm sure that if we did it again, we probably would say things a little bit differently than we did, because I think that was like the low 50s episodes. Um, but they talk about this idea of ex pacto merit, right? And what that is, is it's, it's merit according to or out of the covenant, out of the pact, out of the arrangement, right? And so what we're talking about here is... Um, the, the Westminster Confession says it basically says that the distance between creatures and man was so great that that Adam couldn't have actually had any fruition of blessedness. He couldn't have come right. to a state of blessedness or enjoyment of God, even in a state of innocency and righteousness. He couldn't have come to this uh, this enjoyment of God apart from God voluntarily entering into this covenant arrangement. Right. So when God enters this covenant arrangement, he he isn't. Strictly speaking, he's not actually obligated to Adam. He, he's not actually obligated except for the fact that he is obligated himself, right? So, and right. The, the, the way to kind of compare this, right? There are certain um, obligations that I have to other human beings simply because they're human beings, because they're made in the image of God just as I am, right? I have an obligation not to kill them. I have an obligation to, to help them when I can. When I, when I became married, I entered into a different covenant that gives me further obligations to my wife that are unique to that relationship, right? I'm obligated in certain ways above and beyond my natural obligations to hu other human beings in this covenant relationship that I have with my wife. And that would be true, not to as, um, not to as acute of a way, but that would be not cute, like cute, like it's cutesy, but like acute, like significant. Um, that would be true in any covenantal arrangement, right? When I agree with you, when I make a covenant with you to record at a certain date or time, I'm obligated to you, not out of a natural arrangement, but out of a voluntary agreement that we've made. And that's what we're talking about with the covenant of works is we're talking about the fact that God has said, I'm not required to give Adam this eternal life, right? I'm not required to confirm him into this state of righteousness, but because my glory 
is most manifest by having this person who potentially could could move to this state of confirmed righteousness. Right. I'm going to enter into this covenant arrangement where he can actually obtain that. And so the principle, the works principle in the covenant of works is not a natural principle in that Adam is doing something that naturally communicates uh, or naturally merits divine favor or naturally merits eternal life. That's the Roman Catholic objection, right? Instead, what we're saying is God covenantally obligates himself to Adam, that if Adam is is able to succeed at this probationary task that he's given of keeping the garden and, and spreading the garden and being fruitful and multiplying and not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he will be given eternal life and, and permanently confirmed in that state. And so that that's where we have to now make the pivot. Where does Jesus come into this, right? As the second Adam what relationship does he have? Because here, here's the, the other thing that I think people miss is that uh, sometimes people think like there are some people that aren't in any sort of covenantal arrangement with God. Well, that's just not true, right? All human beings are, are either in Adam or they're in Christ. And when we say in Adam, well, we, we don't we don't mean some sort of union with Adam because we actually would say Adam is actually now in the covenant of Christ, right? But what we mean is that there's this Adamic covenant of works prior to the fall that all people are obligated to. So whether it's, whether it's, um, you know, some non-Christian in, in Poughkeepsie or some non-Christian in uh, Egypt or in China or anywhere else on the human, on the, the, the world, that person is obligated to obey the moral law and, and they're obligated not just naturally, but covenantally. So there are natural consequences to violating the moral law. But there are covenantal consequences that are added on top of those consequences to the moral law. And that's that's the estate of sin and misery that the Westminster Catechisms talk about that we're left in. Is that because Adam fell and he as our representative, we all fell in him, we are now obligated to bear the curses of the covenant of uh, works because he did not succeed. So that's where we're left. And that's where this, this second Adam language becomes so important. And we aren't going to understand what it means for Christ to be the second Adam or the new Adam or the last Adam, unless we understand what it is that is significant about this covenantal arrangement with the first Adam. Right. That's a great point because we need to understand that the, what the reason that Christ came, that God, the father sent his son was there was work to be done to save his people. There was right. actual things that need to be accomplished on their behalf. And it wasn't just about getting like some sense of like the moral theory or governmental theory of like the atonement, which we also covered in a whole right. series of podcasts as if like Jesus just needed to signify that he was sincere enough in his death. And somehow that was all we needed was a sign and that we would either be moved by that sign or that God himself would be moved by that sign. So first I like what you're saying there because it reminds us that well, I think what we're kind of saying is the covenant at works, its underlying presupposition is still in play. The difference is, in other words, you're still responsible for that work. You're still responsible under Adam for the disobedience or for his lack of obedience. The difference is if the natural man finds himself, of course, by nature, underneath the wrath of that disobedience, the Christian, by the grace of God, through the saving of the Holy Spirit and through the death and work of Jesus Christ, right. finds himself credited now as if he obeyed the covenant to begin with and is given that new life, that eternal right. life. So this is why I said at the beginning, we're not talking about a covenant as if like God set up a world and was like, Oh, 
I cr- there's these laws now at play, and I am bound right. by these laws that I created. That if you know if you don't eat from the tree, you are going to be just a okay. It's not like that. He made a specific promise with Adam. It's not like he made, a, like he didn't make promises to like ferrets, you know, like right. specific ferret covenants <laughs> or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, and that's where we can get wrapped up in this idea of like, well, God created the world, and so He created these these laws and these rules. It, this is not Harry Potter. It's not Star Wars. It's not like these things at play that are exogenous or external to God. He, on his own volition, made a promise to Adam that he was right. not required to, and it came on his own volition with certain consequences and also certain prescribed benefits. Yeah. And so what he's promising to Adam that is so important that we need to grasp, I think like you're saying is he was going to give him a higher degree of blessedness than Adam had previously even enjoyed in the garden. Because right. even though I think sometimes we think, well, even he, it's a promise, isn't it a covenant because he lived in this beautiful place. Yeah. He lived in a delightful paradise and he did, he did not have access though to the fullness of this more direct heavenly manifestation of the glory of God because his estate was earth and not in heaven. And even though God walked with him in the garden, the glory of God was not the light of Eden as it will be in the new Jerusalem right. when heaven and earth united together and yeah. God himself is our light. So the glory of Eden was great, but there is a greater glory waiting. And so even in this, we find this beautiful eschatological like inference, like God himself is intoning that if you think this is good, Wait with until you see the promise manifested right. in the covenant that I've made with you, even from the very beginning, because we like to go back in our own minds and almost like nostalgically or in a sense, like romantically try to envision that perfect garden and say, well, that was you know the best of all things. And it really wasn't still because God was still saying, right. that, you can think of it this way, like, here's the garden. This is still probation. How do you like that? It's perfect. It still is probationary because there is a greater blessedness that I'm volitionally creating coming out of my character in the form of this promise, if you will obey me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing that I think is important for us to remember, because of the way that the Mosaic Covenant uh, particularly is structured, right? The, the, The discussion about how the Mosaic Covenant relates to the Covenant of Works is very complex and and as I said, we did an episode on, on Republication that I'm sure we would say things differently. At the very least, we would say them differently, if not actually say different things uh, entirely because of how complex it is and how much right. I think both you and I have learned as we've kind of done this project of 237 episodes of Theological Discourse now. Because it's so complex, sometimes because of the voice of certain uh theologians in our circles, right? We, we are 100% pro-Michael Horton, pro-Westminster, California, but Westminster, California has a particular understanding of the Republication, not universally, but sort of statistically has a particular understanding of the Republication of the Mosaic Covenant of, of um, Moses, the Sinai Covenant. We tend to think of the Covenant of Works almost in terms of earthly goods, in terms of temporal right. goods, because that's where the Mosaic Covenant goes. I actually think that that fact is the number one reason why we shouldn't look at the Mosaic Covenant as a republication of the Covenant of Works, because the Covenant of Works is not an earthly covenant. It's not a temporal covenant. The The end result, the end reward of the Covenant of Works is eternal blessedness and enjoyment of God, right? It's what we as Christians are rewarded with because of Christ's merit, right? The, the question in the Catechism about what happens uh, what re- what benefit do believers receive from Christ at death? I can't tell you what number it is because I haven't gotten that far in my new memories. <laughs> 
But what reward do we receive? The, the chief reward we receive is the eternal enjoyment of God forever. Right. Right. That is the blessing and the, the promise of the covenant of works. That's not the promise of the covenant of Moses. Right. I, I guess maybe I'm, I'm like, maybe I'm close to like convincing myself to be a 1689 person by that. But the, the blessings of the covenant of Moses point to typologically to this covenant. They point right. to it in a way, but they are not the covenant of works because the covenant of works. Hear me on this, people. The covenant of works is a covenant which promises upon perfect personal perpetual obedience. Right. On the context of that covenant, perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Right. That is what Adam needed to do, and by extension, what each of us would need to do in order to obtain those blessings. But that blessing is not long life in the land. It's not uh, It's not that your wine presses will be full. It's not that you will have peace on all sides. It's not that you will have a son to sit on the throne forever. Right? It's not. It's none of those things. What it is, is eternal, blessed, perfect enjoyment of God forever. That right. is the blessing of the covenant of works. And so so we have to get that right because what we'll see next week when we talk about the covenant of grace is that the 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 blessing of the covenant of grace what we get in the covenant of grace is the reward of the covenant of works without us having to do the perfect personal per- perpetual obedience. Yes. Because Christ as in here it is as the second Adam fulfills the covenant of works in his own person and then because we are united with him, those blessings flow to us the same way they would have flowed to us had Adam completed it. So that's that's where it is, right? First Adam, he if he completed the covenant, if he if he fulfilled the probation, all of those blessings would have gone to him and his posterity. Since he failed, it, they go to him, the failure and the curses of that covenant, which are not just temporal, right? The flip side of this is it's not just you're going to die and dissolve in the ground. It's that you're going to die death forever. You're going to die, die. You're going to die death, right? You're never going to stop dying. That also flows to all of his posterity. And so the covenant of grace comes around behind to make God's covenant of redemption true, right? God promised his son he would have a people, and so since those people were not obtained by the covenant of works, they had to be obtained by the covenant of grace. And right. of course, this is all unfolding according to God's eternal decree. It's not as if God was like, oh, shoot, I thought Adam was going to do this and he didn't. So, of course. oh, you know, son, you probably should go take care of this since Adam, right. you know, no Adam botched B. it. Right. That's not what's going on. But the reality is that Adam did not obtain a people for God's own inheritance. And so Christ now comes does the job Adam couldn't and obtains those people himself. So that that's why we have to understand the covenant of works, because if we don't, all of this language about son of man, which is just another way to say son of Adam, right? All of this language about the son of man, about the second Adam, about the covenants, about, about Christ being granted a name above all name, being granted to rule over all, all of that language has to do with what Adam would have been rewarded with. Adam would have been given a name above all names. Adam would have been the the mediator of the covenant of works to his people in a sense, right. not, not in the same sense that Christ is, but the blessings would have been mediated through him. He would have been the channel through which they flow. They flowed. All of those things are true of Christ, but we only can understand that if we get that right, Richard Barcelos 
uh, wrote a book called Getting the Garden Right. And he talks a lot about, I haven't read it, but I've heard, read lots of reviews about it. He talks about this very thing that we have to understand what is going on between Adam and God and the covenant of works. If we're going to get anything else, right. Our eschatology depends on it, right? right? What it means that we are restored to a new heaven and a new earth and paradise. What that means is totally contingent on us understanding this covenant of works and the eternal blessedness that Adam had held forth as a reward, but failed to grasp because he failed to be obedient. Yeah, that's right on. I mean, that's, I think, a really great summary of what we've been trying to talk about here. And I have this like half-baked idea that I, I'm going to share and probably regret, but this is something <laughs> I've been thinking about this week, knowing that we were going to talk about the covenant of works, is there's so many things, of course, I appreciate about Jesus, his brilliance, his obedience, his discipline, uh, his kindness, his patience, all these things. And one of those is that he does his work, but of course he does it exceedingly well. He does it perfectly. And as you said, I think this is important. I want to just draw out something you said. This idea that when we speak about the covenant of works, it's not just outward obedience. It's the intent of the heart. It right. is like an inward obedience as well. That's what was required. It wasn't just don't eat the fruit, but it was to do so, you know, presumably if Adam didn't eat the fruit begrudgingly, that would actually be disobedience. It's, right. It wasn't just the act itself manifested in taking a bite. And so when I look at Jesus, this is all this to say, this might be a crazy thought, that I see in the scriptures this tendency for God to make it hard for himself, so to speak, hear me out for a second because it sounds blasphemous, for, let me say this by me, God to purposely stack the circumstances against him so that he can show his glory and his majesty right. and his power. So whether that's by pouring extra water on you know, the sacrifice to bring down the fire or whether it's throwing the Israelites right in front of the Red Sea or here the spirit sends Jesus out immediately to be tempted by the devil in the desert for 40 days with no food and no water was at his weakest point. And so I'm bringing this all up because one could surmise, I think you one could make the argument that if there ever was a place for the human being to have the easiest time to obey God, it would be in a place of perfection already. Yeah. And that seems like we would all fail it because clearly Adam did and he represents us and I would do the same thing. And yet here we have Jesus coming, the scripture tells us, at the right time in the sovereign plan. And he has to do all of this. In other words, the work that he has to do to show that perfect intent now happens not just in like a perfect environment where it's like, you know, a dude and a, his lovely wife, but he's, he's interacting with all these fools. <laughs> he's dealing with, uh, you know, horrible situations. He's dealing with a climate where there's all these uh, political misguidedness. And here he is in the midst of these really troubling, ridiculous and hard situations. And he's doing his work well, and he's doing his work perfectly. Yeah. And I look at that and I say, did God stack the deck against himself again, as if to show like, I'm going to come and show my obedience through my son. And he's going to do it perfectly. He's going to do it in the most miserable circumstances. And here you will see what it means to be the second Adam. It's almost like if ever any person was to doubt that Christ has made the way and he's made the way by accomplishing the work. He's like, look at my son with whom I'm well pleased. Yeah. Look at him in every conversation. Look at him in every circumstance. Look at him praying all night. Look at him walking on the water. Look at him interacting with the disciples when they do not understand and he would be tempted to have impatience with them. Look at him and see that even in the midst of these really complicated and difficult circumstances, he is accomplishing the work and none of y'all can touch this. So yeah. it's just... I don't know. I see. Is that like a half-baked idea? Do you see where no. I'm going with that? No, not at all. I mean, when you, when you look at, there are, um, 
you know, sometimes you talk about like the chief mysteries of the Christian religion, right? There's like the doctrine of the incarnation. There's the doctrine of the Trinity. Right. The, I think like the third chief mystery of the Christian uh, religion is like what the crap is wrong with Adam. Right. Like, (laughs) like in a certain sense, and maybe not just not a certain sense. Like, I don't know why I put that qualifier on there. There's no reason for Adam to fail. Right. Of course. He doesn't have a sin nature. He's not oriented towards sin at all. There's even like Pelagius would be like, he doesn't even have a bad example to follow. Right. Right. Everything is set up for him to be able to do this. Right. He doesn't have, he doesn't have unnatural inclinations towards sinful things. He doesn't have anyone telling him, I mean, I suppose he does have someone when the serpent comes in telling him something contrary to God's truth, but he also has direct revel, direct special revelation from the mouth of God. Right. That is the truth. Right. right? So Adam's failure in the garden is literally with no reason. It's epic. Right. And so, so, you know, you look at us. There's always, a, there's almost always a reason for why we sin. That doesn't excuse us in terms of our guilt for our personal sin. But our sin is not random, right? There, there's a, there's a, uh, a logical reason why each sin takes takes place. There's a, there's a cause for it. But Adam's sin is almost an, it's almost uncaused in, in that there's nothing in him. There's nothing, there's nothing that would cause him to disobey God. There's no reason for it. There's no, there's no taint or corruption in his nature, right? That's what the Roman Catholics say is they say like, well, his, his constitution, just, just natural constitution can't not sin. No, that's not what Protestants say. Protestants say he had everything he needed to succeed, but he just didn't. He just didn't. And then of course, now Jesus has every reason to fail. Right. He's got everything stacked against him. And it's funny, you know, I was reading uh, the Gospels and you read Matthew's account. He's like, yeah, Jesus went out of the wilderness. He was hungry. And then then the devil came. Mark's like, there were wild beasts out there. (laughs) He was out there. He hadn't eaten or drank anything for 40 days. There were animals everywhere. And then the devil. It's like it's like Mark is going out of his way to say, like, this is a bad situation. Like if ever he was going to fail, this is it. Right. And then, of course, like the Garden of Gethsemane, like if ever he was right. going to fail, that was it. And he, it, I know like it's very vogue to paint this picture of like the agonizing Christ. And there is an element of, of agony in terms of suffering. There's no element of indecision in the, the Gospels. There's no, there's no indecision in Jesus in the Gospels, in anywhere, but especially in the Garden. Right. He resolutely set his face as though it were stone towards the cross well before he gets to the well before he gets to the garden. And by the time he gets to the garden, the direct great drops of blood are, aren't because he's wringing his hands going, what am I going to do? There's never a moment where Christ is even close to failing. He's right. never even he never even ponders it. And, and so I think I think that's something that this gives us is the covenant of works is is not. Uh, or was not an insurmountable task for Adam, mm-hmm. right? We we look at it post fall and we're like, yeah, of course he couldn't. Of course he couldn't do it. Well, no, there is no. Of course he couldn't do it. He could have done it. He just didn't. And there's no good right. reason why he didn't. And that's why it's so important for us to get this, because if we don't get it, then the fact that that Jesus was able to do it as a human being, right, subject to all of the normal limitations of a human being. Christ, according to his human nature and Adam, accord Adam prior to the fall, same human nature, same, same capacities, same limitations, same, same challenges, anything that Adam, uh, was limited by Christ was also limited right. by, 
right? And Adam, just as Christ didn't have a sin nature, Adam didn't have a sin nature when he failed either. And so this does emphasize the victory of Christ in overcoming uh, in overcoming the covenant of works, in a sense of being able to fulfill those obligations, not because he was like Superman and he yes, won the football game there because he's just actually, he's just stronger than everybody else. No, because he actually obedience to God was his primary desire. It was his chief aim and end was to be obedient to God. And so he's able to fulfill this covenant of works on our behalf. Right for us men and our salvation, he came down. If I if I can maybe somewhat sacrilegiously suggest an, an addendum to the uh, Nicene Creed, for us in our salvation, he came became man and obeyed the covenant of works. Right, right. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, yes, but also he lived a perfect life and earned the the merits of the covenant of works in order to then give those to us as his children in the covenant of grace. Right. I totally agree that I'm so glad you got to the Superman thing. Cause you know, I was going to bring that up as a close. So yeah. people could be reminded that what we're saying here is still affirming the hypostatic union. We're still affirming truly God and truly right. man. What we have to be careful about as we've addressed in an episode by that name, I believe Jesus is not a superhero, yeah. which is this idea is it goes back to the covenant of works. If he is to really earn and do the work on Adam's behalf and become the second Adam, then it means that he did that as a man, as somebody right. like you or I. And so in this sense, Jesus really saved us. Like that term of Jesus as savior or Jesus saves is, has become so cliche as almost to lose all meaning. When we go back to the covenant works, we find ourselves tethered to the idea that Jesus really did save us. Yeah. And that is a remarkable truth that I never get tired of hearing because when you read the scriptures cover to cover and you see that God is exacting in his demands because he is holy, that the most loving thing he can do is to send somebody to rescue us, not to do away with his law, because that would be to do away with his character. But in his kindness, he did this thing of predestining those, calling and electing people onto himself and sending the Savior who would lead them out, like you said, calling and yes. creating a people for himself, for his own, which Adam was supposed to do. And if given charge, if I had to represent everybody, which would be a horrible decision, I would fall under the same thing and embarrassingly so, because that's what we're kind of saying is like, Adam, come on. Like right. this is really kind of embarrassing for you and then embarrassing for us because we were just like you. And so here is the God man, the one that we can boast on, the one that Paul was proud to boast on. Right. And part of that was because he said, here is the one who took care of the work on my behalf. And it was real work. And he got yeah. about the father's work. He did the work. I'm trying to see how many times I can put that word in this final <laughs> sentence. Yeah, and I'll say this, and I'll this is what I love about discussing the covenants, right? Because when you discuss the covenants, covenant of redemption, the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, when you discuss these three grand architectonic covenants of the whole Bible, it forces you into these discussions about other elements of theology. Right on. Right? The, the whole reason, you know, why... Christ had to become incarnate, why the incarnation is a necessary, right? Why sometimes you'll hear people speculate like, well, could God have saved humanity a different way? And some people are like, oh yeah, yeah, of course he's God. He could figure out something else. I don't actually think that's the case right. given his voluntary condescension exactly. into the covenant of works, because once he establishes the covenant of works, now, no, he didn't have to establish the covenant of works. He probably could have, 
he probably could have established a different kind of arrangement to come to the eternal blessedness of humanity, but he didn't, right? So once he establishes the covenant of works, no longer can he take all of Adam's progeny out of the covenant of works right. without someone fulfilling that covenant of works as according to the terms of that covenant. And the terms of that covenant are that somebody who is a human had to fulfill this covenant, right? Someone had to do it. It was, it was in air quotes, supposed to be Adam, but Adam didn't do it. And so now Christ has to become human. The son, the son has to add to himself, has to bring into his very person a second nature in order to then step into that covenant and fulfill that covenant in order to now, as, as Paul says in Colossians, take those people and transplant them or transfer them out of the kingdom of darkness. Right. Right. When, when Adam, when Adam falls, when he basically secedes his role as the, I'm using this term cautiously because I think some people would quibble with it, but he secedes his role as the, the head or the mediator of the covenant of works, right? The, the person through whom the blessings of the covenant of works would then transfer to the rest of his, his posterity. When he secedes that role and he basically places himself under the authority of Satan by disobeying God, right? That's why Paul says we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of Satan, and now transferred into the kingdom of God's eternal blessed son. That's the transfer we're talking about, of being transferred out of the out of the covenant of works, right? The covenant of works is still instructive for us. It still teaches us important things. It still shows us what it means to be righteous. But we're now taken out from underneath those covenant obligations, and now we're transferred into a different covenant. It's like if um, you have one kind of mortgage, right? And then someone, somehow someone comes along and they take that and they now buy out your mortgage and they transfer you into a different kind of mortgage. Or maybe a better analogy would be, you know, if you take out credit card debt and it's got this one set of terms and conditions, well, then you don't pay it long enough. And eventually someone else comes and buys your debt from that credit card company. They put you under a different set of terms and conditions. That's essentially what's going on, right? Adam, Adam took out a bunch of debt on his ethical credit card on our behalf. And then Christ comes along and says, I'm going to buy that debt out. And now they're indebted to me in a different way. But our indebtedness to him is now a different term, different terms and conditions than the covenant of works was. And that's, that's why we wanted to do this episode is because it's so important. If you don't get the covenant of works, right. If you don't get the garden, right. As Richard Barcellus, you know, wrote, if you don't get the covenant of works, right. You cannot possibly get the covenant of grace, right. And that's why, you know, when we talk about John Piper and, you know, final salvation according to works and that whole dust up that seems seems to be dying down and then sometimes flares up again. That whole controversy is largely because John Piper does not hold this covenant theology. And so he gets the covenant of works wrong. So he also gets the covenant of, of grace wrong. So that's why this is important. You know, we could just keep like re recycling on this same line of thinking for the rest of the night. Maybe we need to start doing like a, like distilling theology does where it's like Patreon extra, but yes. instead of like getting worth worthwhile content, we just repeat ourselves for an additional two hours <laughs> and that's what you're paying for. We're not going to do that, but maybe we should, but that's why this is so important because in order to understand, you know, you talk about like tulip, right? You talk about like 
the, what God does in, in the doctrines of grace. In order to understand any of that and get any of it even close to right, you have to understand this more foundational covenantal structure to the history of, history of redemption that I think a lot of, especially newer to Reformed theology people, they just entirely miss altogether. And in terms of intense practicality, the covenant of works, again, is something that should be really impounded in our proclamation and articulation of the gospel message. And some of us are tempted to run right past it to get again to the cross or to the empty tomb. But we do an immense disservice to the work of Christ because it is also in his living that he's securing this blessedness because it wasn't just an Adam dying. It was like Adam needed to die a particular way. In fact, that whole point was that he wouldn't suffer that kind of death, both physical and spiritual, but it was in the living. It was actually, isn't that like, that's about gotta be a quote from like every like epic action movie, right? Like dying is easy. Living is hard. Isn't that like (laughs) a quote from like every movie? I guess it's like Tom Hanks in saving private wine where he's like, earn this. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever it is. Something, something like that. But that's in a sense, that's kind of what we're talking about here. And yeah. I hope that other people are tracking with us on this series. Cause we've already talked about the covenant of redemption. I moved into the covenant of works. And we got the covenant of grace coming up, but you're gonna have to wait of course to episode 238 to hear more about that. But in the meantime, I hope people are chatting about this with their loved ones, with their coworkers, with their friends, talking and processing about what these things mean and how it impacts our theology and our daily living. And of course, we do this because it's so helpful. It's like, you know what they say, if you want to understand something, write about it. There's also something about if you want to understand something and process something, talk about it with somebody else. Right. Make so a podcast a, about it. Podcast <laughs> about it with somebody else. Put 237 hours of your voices on the internet for people to constantly criticize and <laughs> go back and evaluate. That's always something that's going to make your life much better. But definitely talking about this is helpful. And I want to just say two things as we close, actually two words of gratitude. One is that there are just so many people that reach out to us with either messages of encouragement or just say they're tracking and processing with us. I want to say, I know we both are so thankful for those people who yeah. reach out to us because the whole idea of this, as you heard us say over and over again, is a conversation of source. We're using the internet as a medium, even if you're leaving voicemails or if you're sending emails to us, that's our way of interacting with each other. And we love that. It's such a blessing to get to hear from other people. And I want to thank brother Mike in particular, who left us a voicemail, I believe while he was driving, I think he, was, he said he was a trucker. He, he does long haul trucking. But uh, he, of course, grabbed a part, not of course, because you don't know what I'm going to say yet, but he grabbed a part of my heart (laughs) because he said he was appreciating some of the musical talk we've had where I mentioned Slick Shoes and some other 90s pop punk bands. And he apparently was the drummer for a band called Noggin Toboggan, which I remember. I have definitely listened to some Noggin Toboggan and he referenced playing with bands like Squad 5-0 and Frito Boat. Oh, my word. I have... I in within reach, I have two Frito Boat CDs right here. So uh, I was just blessed by that. And he was talking about how he was surprised and encouraged to hear people from the 90s in that kind of scene who are still serving the Lord. Brother Mike, there are so many people that I know who grew up on that music, who are loving Jesus now, who are serving him. And I've got good news for you. Shameless plug time, Tony. Good news for you, Brother Mike. If that is your jam, there is another podcast on the Society of Reform podcast that is called Fast God Stuff, <laughs> which I also have the blessing to co-host. And my co-host is Conrad Tolosa, who is the guitarist from Goaty Hook. So yes, there are people from that scene still loving and serving and praising Jesus and doing it in new ways. And that podcast, by the way, has just slightly more music than this podcast. But there is some music. It's good stuff, too. 
and, and some yelling. I appreciate that. The second thing is I want to, in closing, thank everybody who does give to us in a variety of ways. And of course, especially those who give through Patreon. And I want to especially thank brother Michael, who this week jumped on board and said, listen, I love what you guys are doing. And I want to help support that ministry by giving a little bit. We have so many people that give to us and a lot of people just give a little bit here and there. All of that goes such a long way. So thank you so much. Really, that is such a special thing I know to both of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we, we, um, I hope it isn't cliche. I hope, I hope that we say it enough that it risks becoming almost trite, but we are so appreciative of, uh, the people who support us financially. And if you want to, if you want to get on board with that, if you, after you've taken a chance to, um, you know, make sure you're fulfilling your commitments to your local church and your family commitments and all that stuff, if there's a little bit extra and you'd like to consider us, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com and there's a link uh, at the top that says join the brotherhood. There's a number of ways that you can get involved. Um, if you want to contribute financially to us uh, in terms of supporting the, the the overhead costs that it takes to produce the show, um, you can either purchase some gear. We've got some some merchandise available. Oh yeah. We don't uh, we don't make a huge profit on that. We try to keep the margins thin, but that does give us a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a kickback if we make a purchase there. Uh, and then uh, of course, if you want to become a regular uh, donor, you can go to Patreon through that link. There's a link right there. And, you know, whether it's $1 a month or whether it's it's $10 a month, uh, every little bit does help offset those costs. And, you know, you're not just giving uh, to support the Reformed Brotherhood, but uh, we do also use a lot of those funds to help support other shows on the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Sometimes that's paying for a domain fee. Sometimes it, it might be somebody's microphone breaks and we're able to to get some funds to them to, to replace their equipment. So you're really extending your reach beyond just our show, but into now the society, which is is honestly is is. I mean, I think we're at like 13 shows. It's actually growing pretty fast. Right. So so we love when people give. We love when you're able to support us, and we're super thankful. So if, if you're uh, if you're moved to do so, we are uh, grateful for that, and you can do that at that uh, reformbrotherhood.com. And one more shameless plug, which will be the worst one yet because we can't even tell people exactly where to go. But I want to jump back to something you said. This is one of the great new services that we're kind of providing. What if you could, instead of like having to go out and find on the internet wherever we live and then try to find show notes that don't actually exist because we always talk about them, but never do them because it takes a lot of time. What if you could just get an email about an episode and it might have some links in it, might have some scripture, something to study, something to pray. What if that could happen, Tony? It could, it can. <laughs> yeah, we, we did. A, I did a little, uh, worst promo ever. It is the worst promo ever. Um, I did a little bit of a, of a guerrilla marketing, I guess. And basically, if you've ever won a prize from us, then I added you to our newsletter without your permission. <laughs> but nobody unsubscribed, so I guess I guess they don't hate us. Um, I will get better information up, uh, and there will be a link on that same uh, Join the Brotherhood uh, site on our website that'll have information about how to sign up for the newsletter. But what we're really trying to accomplish with this, we don't want it to be just another thing that comes to your email box. Right. right? What we want it to be is like a supplement for you as you listen to the show. The, the, the references that we've, you know, the traditional kind of show notes, like if you want to, if you want to look up the thing we said, if you want to purchase this book by Gavin Peacock and, and Owen Strachan that, that Tony talked about and make sure he's not full of it. Here's the link, but we want it to be more along the lines of something that helps you really dive into the show and, and take it a step further. And we want it to be something that makes it easy for you to share with people. Because yes. one of the things we've learned over the last 237 episodes now, 236 episodes, is people share this show with people 
is as a way to start and move forward conversations with them. So whether it's my coworker who's a Roman Catholic and and they asked me questions and I wasn't sure, so I shared the episode. Or we had we heard some people who were using our Micah series and they were playing clips from it to sort of kick off the discussion and almost as like, what do you think of what these guys think of it? We want to make it easy. So so for example, the last episode was on the covenant of redemption, and we made the suggestion: if you know someone who's struggling with assurance, share this episode with them because the covenant of redemption is a grounding for our our assurance. This one might be more along the lines of, hey, if you know someone who's new at Reformed theology and thinks and isn't quite there yet, and you're wanting to get them to these covenants, share this episode with them. So we want that to be useful. Uh, We're never going to make it mandatory. I don't know how we would even do that. It's not like this is going to be the only way you can get the show. (laughs) But uh, once we get that link up, we'll get you more information. But if you could go subscribe to it, it's a great way to make it easy to to get the show, to make it easy to to share the show with friends. You can just forward in the email. Hey, I got this email uh, that has this this podcast um, and it's got links to where they can subscribe. So we're trying to make it a one stop shop to sort of like help you process the the content further and then also make it easy to share it with people that you think would be edified by by what we've said which is humbling in itself that that anyone might think that but apparently people sometimes do i love it i was excited when i got it in my email box i mean i don't remember signing up for it but i'm not sure what our privacy policy is yeah the privacy (laughs) policy is if you don't like it you can you can unsign up for it i'm not gonna be adding anybody else without their permission i needed to start a list in order to uh to just like test the functionality and get it out uh i figured they've given us our email we sent them a book so turnabout is fair game i guess but going forward you'll sign up for it you can also view it on the web if you you know you want to sign up for it but you don't want to you know if you only use your phone for email or something you can also view it on a web browser so we'll, we'll get that information out soon and i bring that up only to say that again we so appreciate the support we want this to continually be something of a back and forth whatever medium you all choose sending emails at info brotherhood.com or going and leaving a voicemail or in this case Again, all the little support that we get, including the financial support, allows us to expand more and do things like this because these things do cost money to set up these types of things. And we want them to be useful and to be impactful and to resonate and not just to be, like you said, Tony, like just another piece of dumb email that you get where you're like, I don't really care about this. Right. So all of these resources help us to do that, expand a little bit our vision for what this is to really encourage and love on brothers and sisters all over the world as we process theology together and learn to love God and obey him more steadfastly and appreciate him and do that by understanding him better. Yeah. Well, now that we have, have, uh, breached almost the 90 minute mark, we should probably wrap this up. So Jesse, until next week, when we discuss the covenant of grace, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. (laughs) 